Welcome to Micro Digressions. This is Spencer Case. In this episode, I thought I would end the year by doing something different, something that might become a tradition, depending on what feedback I get on this episode. So I thought it would be fun to end the year with a rant-a-thon, just inviting a series of people to rant about whatever they want for 5 to 15 minutes or maybe more. So I did that and I got a real variety of things that people wanted to talk about. And some of them sort of became short conversations, but I think it'll be interesting to listen to. You get more variety than you normally get in a normal episode. And so I'm going to begin by giving you a pair of rants from Mark and Jason of the Brain and Nevet podcast, who rant against each other. You know what grinds my gears? So I run the show Brain and Nevet, the fantastic guy, but he's got some absolutely nuts, nuts positions. We're traveling through Thailand at the moment, end of a long day of sightseeing. All I want to do, sit down and share a beer, my good mate. You know what he says? He says, I'm not drinking that beer. Why? Because he says it'll kill you. Not in the sense that like you might drink too much beer and you get alcohol poisoning or you might get so drunk that you get run over by a car. No. His outlandish, completely crazy view is that your mental states will shift sufficiently after drinking that beer because you'll get drunk that you will cease to be you. And when you sober up, it's not you that's sobered up. What happens really is that there's a discontinuity between your mental states. So there's sober mark, then there's drunk mark, then there's dead mark. Mark is completely dead. And who takes over is a clone. And that clone might have all my memories, all my relationships, all my obligations, but old Mark is gone. And because of that, because of his fear of death, he's not willing to have a nice angle beer with me. Now, that's not one of the only pet picadillos that Mr. Jason Werbelov has. His other one, which is probably a bit more widely shared, is his deep love for utilitarianism. Now, most people think that other people have rights, obligations to them, that it's wrong to intrude on their bodily integrity because there's something vital about their essence that protects them. Not all Jason. He says, whip out that calculator, count up the head-ons, and we can justify anything. We can uh, murder as many babies as we need if we have to to you know, get the greater good. Now he has all these sophisticated ways of moving his sort of utilitarianism around so it allegedly avoids all the problems that us, you know, Kantian types have. He says, well, I don't actually care about real utility. I only care about probabilistic utility. Uh, it's not till the end of history. It's within some kind of medium format. I don't know. It seems like a bunch of bean counting tripe to me. If you want to see the two of us rant it out with each other in actually a much more civilized and polite way than uh, Spencer's crazy format, well, then tune into Brain and Nevat. Um, we promise to delight you with some of the best guests around. We've even had Spencer on the show, but not all of our guests are as talented as Spencer. Let's put it that way. He's doing God's work. Um, when some would say the work of Heavenly Father on his show, uh, it's, it's very impressive what he has. Um, we try and poach his best guests and get them on our show. That's enough of my rant. Next, you can hear Jason rant about me. So you might have heard from my co-host, Mark, uh, he seems to think that a Kantian ethic is right. So in other words, we have these duties, we have these rights and obligations to people. But it's very strange to me that that would be the case. It's very strange to me that we have these things called rights that just pop out of the air, out of nowhere, with no 
sounds and they don't taste a certain way. You can't touch them. You can't feel them. And just somehow magically we're imbued with these rights. And then they generate duties and obligations to other people based on those rights, which is very strange to me. But what's even more strange is because there's not just one right or two rights, there's lots. And because there's not just one or two duties, there's lots of duties. Those duties stack up and often against each other. So there's these conflicts between the duties. So for example, sometimes we have a a right to free speech, but sometimes we also have a duty not to harm others unnecessarily or to offend others. And, And now what? How do you deal with those conflicting rights and duties? So you'd need meta rights and meta duties and meta rules for how to deal with these conflicts. The problem with meta rules is that it's very unclear where those rules come from. Like, where did they pop into existence from? How did we come up with those? It seems like they just thumb sucks out the air. And so my, uh, as Mark calls it, bean counting utilitarianism resolves all of this. Firstly, it seems like the bean counting utilitarianism is going to be used when coming up with those meta rules. So very useful to have it. But secondly, then why not just turn to the bean counting utilitarianism from the get-go? Why not just say, all we care about is utility and get rid of all this talk of rights and, and all that nonsense and just look at what is the happiness or sadness involved in our actions? What happiness does it produce in society as a whole? And how do we make society better? That's all I care about. I don't know why that view's gotten such a bad rap. It really sounds very intuitive to me. I mean, Mark talks about uh, mass baby killing, but there's no mass baby killing there. It's just making everyone happy. Um, But what goes along with this Kantian ethic and the rights and the duties and obligations is often this idea of a legal system. So built into this idea that we have these rights and obligations is that if I don't fulfill my obligations or if I contravene a right that you have, the law is going to come after me. So there's going to be these rules about how I should be punished or censured in some way for breaking that or for violating that right of yours. And that seems very strange to me as well, because the legal system is going to have these contradictions that I discussed before. You're going to have rights and rules that contradict each other. But also it's, it's such an incredibly complex legal system that very few citizens who aren't themselves legally trained can understand it. And even those who are legally trained will argue about the correct interpretation. So it seems like at any given time when you're acting, you don't know whether what you're doing is legally sound or not. You'd have to get a panel of experts in and they're going to disagree with each other. And if you were to get this panel of experts in, in many cases, you just, you won't know ahead of time whether what you're doing is right or wrong from a legal perspective. And if you're a Kantian, also from a moral perspective. And that's, and that's uh, not even taking into account the fact that these rights and obligations, these rights and duties seem to have inviolable uh, uh, commands that should stretch across all scenarios, all situations. So the very famous one is Kant. Kant said that uh, you should never lie. And that just, it just becomes insane. You know, there's certain situations where lying is not only it seems okay to do, but that you really should lie for example, to protect someone. So the Nazi comes and knocks on your door and says, where's Anne Frank? And if you're, if you're a Kantian, what do you do? You say, yeah, she's upstairs. She's behind the bookcase. You know, go and get her. You know, that, that seems like not just uh, immoral, but like obnoxiously so, terrible way to, to guide your ethics. So 
yeah, this inviolable rights and duties thing, unless it negates some other right or duty, seems absurd to me. Um, so yeah, uh, if you want to hear more of, of Mark and I going at each other, but as he said, in a much more civilized way, um, tune into Brain in a Vat. Uh, we're available on podcast and YouTube. And now I am here with Perry Hendricks, the guy who made publishing too many papers uncool because he did it while being a white Christian male who is not for abortion, I guess. So, Perry, I understand you have a rant to offer us here. I hope so. We'll see. Okay, my rant is this. I noticed over the past like year or so, some of my friends who were submitting articles to journals were receiving comments back from referees about the gendered terms that they would use. So like one of my friends, she had like an article on pelvic exams and she talked about women who undergo pelvic exams. And one of the comments from the referee was something like, consider talking instead of about women who get pelvic exams, talk about, you know, women, trans men and non-binary people who get public exams. And then I started hearing from a few other people similar stories. And this all struck me as, uh, you know, a bad thing that reviewers would make these kinds of suggestions. So I decided to pitch a post to the blog of the APA on this issue, um, where I would argue that, you know, reviewers shouldn't include suggestions about gender terms because one, it's unnecessary, and two, it's unethical, or so I would argue. So it's unnecessary because, you know, the gender terms one uses don't affect the quality of a paper. They don't affect whether the paper merits publication. And then I argue it's unethical because it's unjustly coercive. So all reviewer comments are going to be coercive. Authors will feel pressured to do what the reviewer asks because it increases the likelihood that the paper will get published. And that's fine for most things. But there's reasonable disagreement about the nature of gender. And so these coercive comments, they're pressuring the author to either abandon a view that they hold or to adopt or seemingly write as though they adopt a view that they don't hold. And so I argued that, you know, that shouldn't be done for that reason. It's unjustly coercive. Now, you know, maybe someone thinks that, like, it's potentially really harmful to use certain kinds of gendered terms like talking only about pregnant women or something like that. And so I say, well, like, think of if you're a pro-life reviewer reviewing an article that talks about fetuses, but doesn't call them fetal persons. I say, you know, like, in that case, the reviewer has really strong reason to push her terminology and insist that the author call them fetal persons. Because the stakes are really high there. In fact, they're far higher than in the gender term case. But, you know, it'd still be bad for the reviewer to do that. And so that was kind of the argument I give. And uh, I wrote that for the blog of the APA. So they accepted the pitch. And then I sent them the original article. And it's harder to get an article at the blog of the APA than it is the philosophical review, apparently. Because uh, <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to get comments back. I got three anonymous sets of comments from three anonymous editors of them, of the blog of the APA. And the comments were fine. They were all like constructive and they actually helped me improve it. And we went back and forth two or three times. Everything seemed fine. There were no like indications that this piece was bad or ought to be rejected. And so I finished like it was the second or third round. I forget how many there were and everything looked fine. And then I get an email after all that from the editor in chief. And he says, 
we're not going to publish this piece as is. There are some serious problems with it. And he had two like absolute demands that I needed to meet for it to be like reconsidered. One of the demands was I needed to show that this was a widespread phenomena. So I needed to show that this is happening often or it happens a lot. But that's, you know, like really hard to do. I would have to, uh, I don't even know a good way to go about doing that. And I never claimed it was widespread. I just said, I know it's happening and I know a surprising amount of people that it's happened to. And it's a bad thing. Um, Whether or not it's widespread, I don't know. But, you know, I know it's happening. I pointed out like, you know, this is kind of a weird standard of evidence to hold me to here. Like I'm making a pretty modest claim and my evidence is pretty good for it. It's just testimony and it's that it is happening. And then I pointed out that there are other cases on the blog of the APA where the standards of evidence are really low. There was a post about fat female philosophers. And the author says something like, there's very few fat female philosophers and goes on to make various claims about why that is. And I pointed out that the evidence that the author offers for this claim is that her and her friends can't think of very many fat female philosophers. And then she concludes, you know, that there just aren't very many. (laughs) But like that is terrible evidence. And it also conflicts with like, I can think of quite a few. So I don't know what is going on there. Like that's a really low bar of evidence to have. It'd be really impolite to name them though, right? Like, oh, you forgot about these five people. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I pointed that out and the editor said, you know, well, look, we know that fat shaming is bad. Like that's very clear. Everyone knows that. So the standard of evidence is lower there than it is in your case. But I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. I'm not making this claim. I'm not claiming it's widespread. I'm claiming that it's happening. That was it. And then the other uh, thing I needed to show was that it's actually harmful. And he suggested maybe like asking authors how they felt about having these suggestions, which again, uh, I guess that's fine. But I also like gave an argument for why it was bad. I guess he didn't like the argument, but I don't know. It, it, it was a very strange process. I went back and forth. Uh, I think it was cordial, but I gave up on that piece because the demands seemed too extreme for me to spend time pursuing that. And I guess, uh, I guess that's my rant. Wasn't there also something there about there's no reasonable disagreement about abortion? Oh, there was, that was for a separate piece. Well, that would also conflicts with this. So I do claim in that piece, like there's reasonable disagreement about the nature of gender And then the response was like, I think he said something like, well, look, no opponent is going to grant that. And I think, you know, like, that'd be crazy not to grant that. Like, there's rational disagreement about, like, almost every philosophical subject. It'd be really weird if gender was the thing that there's no rational disagreement about. Like, that'd be a pretty big surprise. And then, yeah, I wrote it. There's another piece on abortion, which would take a bit long to go into. But one of my claims, well, I was just making an assumption Uh, which is that there's rational disagreement about abortion, about whether abortion is, you know, wrong. And uh, yeah, he took issue with that too, saying, you know, opponents aren't going to grant that. But, you know, every single person I know working on abortion is going to grant that. Like, why? that'd be wild to say that there's no rational disagreement about that. And I also think I'm in a better position than, you know, that guy to know whether there's rational disagreement about it. But yeah, that didn't fly with him either. So as far as the gender language stuff, I got that. I got that comment recently. I'm not going to say on what, but the reviewer complained that I use his or her 
instead of they when I was talking about a singular person because it's offensive to the non-binary and, you know, stuff like this. And what's interesting is I've noticed, I've noticed I've been faulted for saying he as a default pronoun, but I've also noticed philosophers using she all the time. And that seems to go without comment. So the assumption of gender is okay if it goes against the traditional power structure or whatever, that's fine. But if it's conservative, then that's bad. Yeah, I've not seen that either. But that strikes me as also like, like just clearly unnecessary to make comments like that. I don't understand why anyone would include that in a report at all. I find myself saying she, but for entirely non-rational and unprincipled reasons. When I like first started reading philosophy, I read a bunch of Alvin Plantinga's stuff and he would throw around the word she quite a bit when he was, at least that's how it appeared to me. Maybe he actually doesn't. And it was just such so jarring to me at the time. Uh, but he like uses the word she a lot. And it really stuck with me because I was first starting to read again, basically. I didn't really read out of high school. And then I just jumped into philosophy. And now saying he just sounds really bad to me. It just sounds ugly. And so I find myself always using she uh, so it's for entirely non-rational reasons uh, and non-principled reasons that I use she. But I have noticed other people do it, and maybe they would say moral reasons or something. But that's definitely a common phenomenon, I think. You've internalized that voice. <laughs> I guess so. You know what else I think is amusing is liberal Christians refer to God as she. So you can misgender God. There's an exception. God gets misgendered. Because, you know, if if you're taking the Bible, I think, is your primary text here, it seems like God is pretty clear about what pronouns he takes, you know? But but this is the one exception. You can misgender God. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, I've seen that as well. And I think they chalk it up. Uh, they'd say, well, this is just biases that were in play at the time. Something like that kind of argument. And I talk about this for this book that I've got because I, I feel like I need to explain the terms I use. So I, I explain like I'm going to use he and him to talk about God, but it's for like just non-rational, non-principled reasons. It just sounds better to me because that's the word that's been used. And I don't think it's harmful. So some people will argue we shouldn't use he and him because it's harmful and can be misleading. But anyone reading this book and anyone thinking about philosophy is going to know that God is not a male, at least if you're thinking about God as traditionally conceived. Because God doesn't have a body and there's no sense in which, uh, no like serious sense in which he'd be a male. So I say, you know, since no one is going to be confused by this or harmed because they know that God isn't a male, I'm just going to continue to use these terms and it's permissible for me to do so. And anyone who would be confused by it after reading that sentence won't be confused. Yeah, that's an interesting discussion that's happening now as well. Well, my my Mormon family would disagree about the whether or not God is a male, but I'll set that one aside for now. <laughs> but one thing that irritates me about this, like it seems trivial, it's a trivial thing, but if you have enough of these trivial things adding up, like another one I complained about is very often, it's not 100% of the cases, but very often the kinds of examples that you're given in like moral arguments and dilemmas and stuff, or just anecdotes are examples that reflect badly on conservatives or right-wing people. They hardly ever give examples of like 
this communist is doing this really terrible thing and then you have to decide what to do. It's, it's always a Nazi and often even just like a Republican, like Alan Wood is particularly bad about just going out of his way to insult conservatives, not as a conclusion of any argument, but just as an aside or as an example that could easily have been politically neutral. And what this does is you have, if there's a lot of this stuff going on, it just creates an atmosphere where people are going to feel like outsiders for non-rational reasons, right? For reasons that have nothing to do with the substance of what's been argued. And it's a way of sort of imposing a kind of, you know, you have to show that you have the right political beliefs or at least the right political language to fit in. This is part of professionalism. And so I think that's been sort of stealthily imposed upon us. And it doesn't end run around rationality and, and civil discourse that's supposed to be central to the field, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about that, but that's totally uh, that's totally right. Like, think of which example you'd be more nervous to use, uh, like an example from like some communist regime or like what's that lady's name, Marjorie Green or something like that, or even like a standard conservative bashing. That's really interesting. All right. You have anything else to add? I'm more into division than adding a little bit of subtraction too. sometimes multiplication. Do you have anything else to uh, multiply this by the power of? (laughs) Uh, Not that I can think of off the top of my head. All right. So for my next rant, I invited Professor Bob Pasnow from CU Boulder to rant on something specific. He's the only person I asked to rant about a specific topic, but I really wanted to hear Bob Pasnow rant about attacks on the history of philosophy, the pro and anti-history of philosophy divide within philosophy seems to get surprisingly heated. At least outside observers might think it's surprisingly heated. And I figured... Bob, who has written so many books and articles in the history of philosophy, would have something to say about this. So take it away, Bob. You know, I I feel uh, very mild-mannered on the subject of the uh, history of philosophy. I Obviously, I like doing history of philosophy. I spend a lot of time doing it. Some might say I'm kind of obsessed with it. But I also like working in contemporary philosophy. I spend a lot of time reading work in contemporary philosophy. I uh, try my hand at it from time to time and publish things on a steady basis on various topics in contemporary philosophy. I I like doing both of them. I don't tend to get too worked up about the topic, you know, and I, I, I would get worked up if I was told I had to pick one or the other, because to me, it's very meaningful to do both kinds of work. And I'm not sure I'd be very happy in philosophy if I only did history of philosophy, never thought about contemporary stuff that was going on, or, or conversely, I'm not sure I'd be very happy if I only did contemporary stuff. I think I'd find that pretty dull to be kind of locked into the way philosophy's going on right now. So, so I like doing both. I respect both. I think they're both important. I, I also, I don't really see any great difference between them in a lot of ways. If, from my subjective point of view, when I'm doing history of philosophy, it's very much the same kind of thing that I do when I do uh, contemporary philosophy. You know, I, I read stuff, I think about what I'm reading, I get ideas, 
you know, I, I write up the ideas. I try to understand the issues. You know, it's like whether I'm reading something that just came out in the latest journal or something that's 10 years old or 50 years old or 500 years old. It's all kind of the same for me. Of course, I mean, history of philosophy does require special skills, just like a lot of areas of contemporary philosophy require special skills. And so if you're an historian, you do have to spend a lot of time with languages and messing around with texts and, you know, arcane issues that you've got to spend a lot of time sorting out. But, you know, a lot of contemporary philosophies that way, too. People, you know, that write technical appendices to their article and, you know, spend all of this time getting the proofs right in, in ways that, you know, I'm thinking I don't do that sort of work, but I'm thinking it's probably not itself all that philosophical in the way it feels to do that sort of work, but it's important to the work and people spend their time doing it. And it's just, you know, I think, I think so much philosophy is like that. There's the straight up philosophy and there's the sort of stuff you have to do on the side to get yourself in a position to do it respectably. Um, so, so, so like I say, I'm pretty mild mannered about that. Um, I, I guess when I start to get worked up is when people start to make great claims for the superiority of one over the other. Uh, and, and people definitely do make these claims. Um, and so maybe I should try to say some things against, against claims in both directions. And we'll see if this gets into rant mode at any point. I'm not sure it will. You know, there are people that complain a lot about contemporary philosophy. And why isn't it better? You know, you know, it doesn't seem to make any progress. There are no great figures in philosophy today that it's disconnected from other parts of the academic world. You know, and these are serious concerns. Now, I mean, I, I think sometimes people have unrealistic expectations for contemporary philosophy. I mean, it's clear if you look at the history of philosophy, it's got its up and down periods. There are periods of time in which history of philosophy is completely dull and almost dormant. There are other magnificent times in the history of philosophy. It's kind of unreasonable to expect yourself to have the luck to be born into an era that's one of the you know, great, great times for doing philosophy. But, you know, I think this is a pretty good time for doing philosophy. There's certainly a lot of philosophers out there. There's a lot of things being written. I think, you know, a lot of it's pretty interesting. You know, some of it is, is deadly dull, but, you know, that's always the case with philosophy. There's better stuff and, and worse stuff. I, I, I do think it's, it's terrible that philosophy is so disconnected from the rest of the humanities. I spend a lot of time talking to people in literature departments, and it's just terrible how empty they find work in recent philosophy. And you can blame them, but, you know, I, I think it's the job of philosophers to connect with these people. And we do a very poor job of that. Of course, we do a much better job with the sciences, at least some parts of the sciences. And so the complaint that philosophy is disconnected, that's simply not true when it comes to, you know, areas like linguistics or parts of physics or parts of psychology. And so that's a real success story for philosophy. Anyway, you know, I, I think philosophy's pretty good right now. And, you know, it's a bit unfair to compare it to the history of philosophy because historians get to cherry pick. You know, we can look back over millennia and pick the very most exciting stuff to work on. Obviously, if you work on contemporary stuff, you don't have that leeway. You just, you're sort of stuck with what's coming out today. Well, 
let me let me shift over then to what I think Spencer wanted me to talk about, the issue of whether history of philosophy is worth doing. Now, incredibly strong claims get made about this and, and about, you know, how history of philosophy is a waste of time. And, you know, anybody who's not thinking about contemporary issues is just either not doing philosophy at all or, or, or doing something that's of no value. It all seems very weird to me because, as I say, I just don't see any great difference between these different modes of engaging with philosophy. And in my own work, I read contemporary stuff and I get ideas about the history. I read history and I get ideas about the contemporary stuff. The notion that only one of those things would be worth doing and it's only, you know, reading stuff that's been published in the last 10 years or whatever, that it's just so alien to me that I, I sometimes don't even know how to respond. My suspicion is when people go on these rants against the history of philosophy, what's just happened is that they've been forced to listen to some lecture in the history of philosophy that was exceedingly dull and had no philosophical interest to it at all. And, you know, it puts them in a mood and they think they've wasted their time and they think everybody's wasting their time who does work like that. Now, for sure, there is work in the history of philosophy that's like that, that's just not philosophical at all. And if you're not interested in the history, then being forced to listen to a talk like that with no philosophical content, that's a drag. That's, that is a waste of your time as a philosopher. Now, that work can be, can be important to people like me who try to do the history of philosophy in a philosophical way. We count on people doing the drudgery of digging up the historical arcana and, you know, giving us the materials as philosophers to think philosophically about the history. We need that sort of work. But, but I'm happy to say that there's a lot of stuff like that that's not very philosophical. So when I say I don't see a big difference between current philosophy and the history of philosophy, I have in mind a certain way of engaging with the history of philosophy. That's as good as people working on stuff coming out on the journals in the last few years. So what, what kind of starts to get me into rant mode if anything does, is when people start to make these sorts of extreme claims about the worthlessness, even of history of philosophy of that sort. Now, I don't see any reason why I should spend any time defending, you know, Aristotle, Hume, Kant, Plato, Aquinas. Those guys, I mean, they've been around for a while. We know the value of their work. We know what it can do in a classroom, how it can inspire students to read that stuff. We know the fruitfulness of that work for developing new ideas. I mean, for centuries and centuries and centuries, people have drawn on that old stuff and have developed new ideas. We know the interdisciplinary impact of that stuff, how people, you know, across the university read Aristotle, read Plato, read Kant, and take inspiration from it. That stuff, its value has been proved long ago, and it would be it would be foolish for me to, you know, spend any time defending it. What's hilarious to me is when people come along and sort of want to reject all of that stuff and say, "Oh no, we should just read the new stuff in the journal." It's like it's like when some band comes along and claims, "Ah, we're better than the Beatles." You know, when when some band comes along and says they're better than the Beatles, nobody rushes out to defend the Beatles. It's just not necessary. And it's also 
really not necessary to make fun of people for going around saying that, you know, they're better than the Beatles, that philosophy today is better than, you know, the greats of the past. It's enough to just sort of smile and nod and give them a little bit of encouragement because, I mean, that would be great. You know, let people who say these sorts of things, let them go out and show us that they're right. You know, knock themselves out, uh, make us proud, show us that we're living in a time that really lives up to these great figures of the past. That's what anybody who cares about philosophy, that's what they should want. They should want people to go out and do that. So, so when people sort of say, oh, philosophy today, it's so much better than the old stuff. I, I, I've got no desire to disagree with that. Go for it. Show us that you're right. End of rant. I would have thought the analogy would have been better than Bach, not better than the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could, that could be. All right. So, Matt, I understand you've got a spiel for me on, or you, you've got a rant for me on probability. Yeah, probability. So I'm shuffling my deck of cards, okay? Now I'm taking the deck of cards, which I've just finished shuffling, and I'm putting it down on the desk in front of me. And I'm taking the top card and I'm flipping it up for all the world to see. Okay? Now, uh, a little bit of audience participation here, Spencer, although this is my rant. What is the probability that the card that I just flipped up is the three of clubs? Well, I'm inclined to say, I know you're going to say this is wrong, but I'm inclined to say it's one in 52. Sure, right? I'm, I'm going for intuitive reactions here, right? These, these are easy questions, right? And then, then I'll show you why they're actually hard. So one out of 52, of course, right? Now, Spencer, I'm going to tell you one more thing, one more bit of information. I didn't hit. That wasn't the three of clubs. The card I turned over was a seven of hearts, okay? Now, Spencer, same question. What is the probability that the card on top of the deck is the three of clubs? Uh, one. You mean zero, right? It, it didn't hit us. I said. Oh, oh yes, yeah, right, right, right. Sorry, I thought it was the one you said, but yes. Okay, so notice something interesting there. Your answer changed. I asked you first what the probability was, and you said it was one out of fifty-two. And then second you time, you said zero. But nothing about the deck of cards changed. I didn't touch it. It was sitting there on the desk the whole time, right? I didn't do anything to it. But the probability of that deck of cards changed. That should that should strike you as being a little bit weird. So we can think of basically three different possibilities here. One is that the probability that the three of clubs is on top was one out of 52 the whole time, both before and after, right? But that sounds weird, right? It sounds weird to say that the probability that it's the three of clubs is going to be one out of 52, when the seven of hearts is sitting on top of the deck, which I can see. That would be weird. We could also say that the probability was 0% the whole time. After all, there was only one card that was on top the whole time, and it was never the three of clubs, so the probability is 0%. But in that case, anytime we shuffle a deck of cards, the probability that the three of clubs on top isn't going to be one out of 52. It either is on top, in which case it's 100%, or it's not, in which case it's 0%. Or we could say that the probability really did change, right? But that's also weird because nothing about the deck of cards has changed. 
nothing about the deck change. The only thing that changed is your information. So that would imply that the probability is not something about the deck of cards. It's something about your information. But that's also weird because we talk about probabilities as though they are properties of distinct events. So notice that this example that I'm starting with here, right? this example of the deck of cards, this is not a weird example. This is not a far-off case involving quantum mechanics or any weird probability math, right? I just shuffled the deck of cards and I asked you two questions about it. And already you're starting to hopefully get a little bit of a skeptical angst here, a, a bit of, oh, huh, I don't really know what to say about this. This is the easiest case of all regarding probability, and you don't know what to say. Now, what I think that shows is that there are some very deep tensions, very deep, perhaps even contradictions in our intuitive ways of thinking and talking about probability. Now, when I say that there are some obvious tensions in our ways of talking and thinking about probability, this is not actually controversial. If you work on the philosophy of probability, right, then you are well aware that there are these sorts of tensions and contradictions. There's a great article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy by Alan Hyatt called Interpretations of Probability. So the article is the Interpretations of Probability uh, article. Anyone who's interested in probability should check out that article. And one of the basic points that gets made in that article, one of the structuring things for the whole discussion in that article, is to say that there's a number of things that we want from a theory of probability. And there's lots of different theories of probability, but not every theory of probability gets us everything that we want, right? So let's look at what all the different theories of probability are, see which ones it gets, see which different parts of our concept of probability this theory gets right and which parts it gets wrong. Perfectly normal structure for an article like that. But I think the significance of the fact that we can do that is unappreciated. So here's one way of interpreting what's going on there, right? We've got a number of really important parts of our concept of probability. Nothing satisfies all of the different parts of our concept of probability, right? None of the theories does particularly well. Every theory has problems. Therefore, nothing satisfies all of the basic conceptual constraints that are imposed by a naive theory of probability. Therefore, probability doesn't exist. This is an argument for an error theory about probability. Now, I don't know if I'm an error theorist about probability. I am somewhat inclined in that direction, but I am interested in arguing for error theory about probability in order to get people to see some of the problems, right? To, to present challenges so that people will realize that there's, there's a much bigger problem here than we naively can uh, assume. And we shouldn't use uh, probability talk as glibly as we do. Now, um, you might think, well, sure, but there maybe maybe we should accept sort of, sort of a former definition. Maybe nothing captures everything that we want from our theory of probability. But going all the way to being an error theorist about probability, that's, that's too much. We should accept some sort of reforming definition. Well, maybe, but we should do that consciously and deliberately. And there's a number of different candidates for what our reforming definition could be. And if we accept one particular reforming definition, that means that we're giving up on everything that that reforming definition doesn't get right about our naive concept of probability. 
So let's make this a little bit more. By looking at two different general approaches towards what probability is, what probability could be, and looking at some of the massive, massive deficiencies of these two particular approaches. I'm going to be doing this at a very glib surface level. If we wanted to go through all the epicycles, this would take an hour, but just at a, at a very basic level. So one thing that we might think about probability, this is more um, objective conception of probability, is that probability is something about frequencies, about relative frequencies. We got my deck of cards. There's 52 cards in that deck, but only one of them is the three of clubs. So the ratio of three of clubs to total cards is one out of 52. So this is a relatively objective conception of probability. It's uh, known as the frequentist conception of probability. Now, the big problem with the frequentist conception of probability is two related problems. The problem of the single case and the reference class problem. So the problem of the single case says that there are many times when we want to evaluate the probability of a particular event, right? What is the probability that Donald Trump wins the 2016 presidential election, right? Nate Silver told us that it was 37% or something like that. It was around 37%. Nate Silver told us that it was 37%. Was he right about that? Could he have been right about that, right? Well, if we take a frequentist conception of probability, then that says that there's some class of events and then 30%, 37% of those are events where Donald Trump wins. But what's the class of events? The election was run a single time. There was one election and he won. Donald Trump 100% won that election. So what was the 37% beforehand? Whenever we have a one-off event, we do often want to try to ascribe a probability to a one-off event in election forecasting is maybe the most commonly known example of this. But you can't provide a frequentist analysis for single cases. Now, one way that you might want to try to solve this problem is to construct a reference class around it, which is to say, okay, maybe it doesn't make sense to say that this one particular event has a 37% probability, but we can have a class of similar events. And within that class of similar events, 37 out of 100 of them have a certain number. But then what class of similar events are you talking about? If we're talking about elections, there's going to be a very, very large number of elections. Which elections are we choosing? So this is like the generality problem for reliabilism. It's kind of like that. Exactly. It's, it's very similar to the generality problem for reliabilism. If you are defining this as relative to a reference class, then you have a huge amount of degrees of freedom for choosing that reference class. There is no one reference class. And really what you got to do is you got to explicitly define it in terms of a reference class. You need to say the probability of X out of class Y is whatever percent. But that just means that there's no such thing as the probability of an event. There's always a probability of an event type out of a class, which if we accepted that as a reforming definition and said, okay, so that's what we're talking about with probability. It's always this event type out of some class. Then that would imply a very substantial change in how we talk about probability. For instance, we could not say, what is the probability that Donald Trump wins the uh, 2024 uh, Republican nomination? That question just doesn't make sense. We'd have to say something like, we need to define some class of elections. And 
say how many of them. And then when we're talking about the, the election that happens in the future, to evaluate what that frequency is, we would need to know what the outcome is, right? Whether that's a, a plus one or a minus one and, and the numerator. So our entire way of talking about at least election probabilities, you can't really do that on a frequentist understanding. So Nate Silver would just be complete bullshit, right? And not for not for the normal reasons why people don't like Nate Silver. Just like <laughs> probability, that the notion of probability that he's working with is fundamentally ill-suited to the task to which he's applying, right? So what other sort of conception of probability might we have here? So a second broad class of conceptions of probability are subjectivist conceptions of probability. Frequentism is maybe the most popular objectivist conception of probability, or we could go with a subjectivist understanding. So this fits in well with how the answer you gave at the beginning. What was the probability before? It was one out of 52. What was the probability after? It was zero, right? Because your probability changes. This is not a feature of the deck of cards. It is a feature of Spencer case that the probability is one out of 52. And then when something changed about you, when you got more information, then the probability changed. Okay, so cool. Let's dig into that. What would that be? What would a subjective conception of probability be? Now, the first thing we might say is, oh, it's your beliefs about probability. Spencer, your beliefs about the probability change. And because it's your beliefs about probability that change, then that's what it means for the probability change. But of course, that can't be right because it's your beliefs about probability. So we need to have some prior conception of probability for the beliefs to be about. So subjective conceptions of probability aren't really beliefs about probability. The way that we do this in epistemology is we talk about degrees of belief. And what probability consists in is someone's degree of belief in a proposition. Now, there are a couple problems with this. First off, why do we think that belief comes in degrees like this? And in particular, why do we think that belief comes in these sort of highly precise degrees that we can measure mathematically? One out of 52. Spencer, what do you think the probability is that Donald Trump is going to win the uh, nomination in 2024? Uh, you don't have to answer that. But I, I pose that question. Maybe you have some degree of belief, right? Is that exactly 36.987%? Like, that's ridiculous. Trying to assign a precise mathematical quantity to that just has an overt feeling of absurdity. And yet we do this. Why? Well, the formalism that says that this is possible rests on behaviorist assumptions. It says, if you look at the actions that you perform, we could represent your actions as though you were maximizing expected utility given a certain utility function and probability function. Right? This is what's known as a representation theory. So we could represent you as having certain probabilities based on what your actions were. There are two big problems with this. One is that this rests on behaviorist assumptions and behaviorism is false. Behaviorism is not a good account in the philosophy of mind. And second, relatedly, is that even if we could represent your actions as maximizing expected utility given a probability function, that's just not what you're doing. The representation theorem gives us a maybe tractable economic model for describing action, but it is laughably bad as a descriptive model of your actual mental states. 
So um, that's one problem. Another problem here is, are we talking about what your mental states actually are? Or are we talking about what they should be? So let's say that I, I that thing, I shuffled the deck of cards and I said, Spencer, what is the probability that the card on top is the three of clubs? And you said, 100%. I am absolutely confident that it's the three of clubs. Just for some reason, you're, you're irrationally confident. Then what is the probability that it's the three of clubs? It is 100%. Because again, we are just describing your mental state. And if you are irrationally confident, then the probability is 100%. And you can't be wrong about that because, again, the idea that we're working with here is that this is just what probability is. It is what your degree of confidence is. And if your degree of confidence is 100%, then you're 100% confident. That's crazy. So maybe we should say something like, okay, well, it's what your degree of belief should be. It's what your degree of belief should be. But what should your degree of belief be? Your degree of belief should be 1 out of 52. Why should it be 1 out of 52? Because there is an objective probability of 1 out of 52 and you're trying to match your degree of belief to the objective probability? No, right? We've just seen there's big problems with this notion of objective probability. We were treated to a notion of subjective probability to try to do better. So if we are now giving a normative characterization of subjective probability and trying to give the correctness conditions, for that normative conceptual probability. In terms of matching objective probability, we can't do that. We can't do that. So what should we say then? Well, sort of the orthodox answer here then is just to say, oh, well, this depends on whether or not you have rationally updated in response to your previous evidence. Well, then, well, what was your previous evidence and how should you have rationally updated? Well, that depends on what your evidence is and depends on what your priors are. And there are no constraints on your priors. So this still ends up being a radically subjective account of what probability should be, right? If you have just really weird priors and you are updating correctly in response to new evidence, what you end up with could be basically anything. So still, we have no substantive constraints here. So that's one thing that people are worried about. Another thing to worry about here is just to note that this notion of probability, we are now locating it downstream from all of substantive epistemology. Because what we're saying is the probability is the degree of belief that you should have. What is the degree of belief that you should have? Well, that's an epistemic question. That's going to be determined by a variety of epistemic factors, right? We need an account of what evidence is and yada, 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 right? All the different things that epistemologists talk about. So the probability of any event is going to depend on a huge bulk of substantive normative epistemic principles and their application to your particular evidential statement. This is highly substantive, highly non-trivial. And depending on how you answer all the different questions in epistemology, it's going to give you very different answers for what the probability is going to be. And you've got to figure out epistemology now without drawing on the notion of probability at any point. Exactly. Exactly. The thing you shouldn't believe is, it's not the case that the thing that you should believe is whatever has the highest probability. Well, you can accept that, but just, you know, you'd have to flip the order of dependence around. The thing with the uh, highest probability is defined as the thing that you should believe. And then we need another substantive conception of what the thing that you should believe is. And notice also, this doesn't do uh, justice to our sense that if you shuffle a deck of cards, 
then the card on top has a probability of having a three of clubs on top of one out of 52. So objective frequentist conceptions of probability have huge problems. Subjective conceptions of probability have huge problems. These are our conceptions of probability. This is what we're working with. They all have huge problems. And so what I think is really going on in so much of our talk about probability is something much more skeptical that, or that merits much more skeptical analysis. I think that certain propositions, when we hear about them, they just sound right or they just don't sound right. Or maybe they don't sound right or not right. I don't really know. Right? We have an immediate sort of phenomenological reaction to entertaining a proposition, whether or not it sounds right or it doesn't sound right. We then project that attitude. If something sounds right, we will attribute a high probability to it. And if something sounds wrong, we will attribute a low probability to it. And then if we're asked to back up this practice, we will point to frequencies that we can locate somewhere in the area, right? Some relevant class that we can define a frequency in terms of in order to provide a post hoc rationalization for our engaging in this practice of assigning probabilities to things. But this just shows that what we're doing is we are making a big sort of messy confusion of subjective and objective conceptions of probability. That's what we're doing. And any attempts that have been made to try and disentangle this and plump for either an objective or subjective conception run into obvious immediate problems. So be careful when you talk about probability. I got to ask a follow-up. Great rant, terrific rant. So sometimes we agree about how philosophers misuse the terminology that they invent or they invent terminology that's supposed to clarify things. And then like the tools become the master in this weird way. Do you think that's happening here? That like probability is a technical term that was introduced and now it's messed up our intuition somehow? Yes. Short answer, yes. So the, the entire mathematical theory of probability was invented to help with gambling. And that is useful in certain contexts when we're talking about like a, a deck of cards, right? Because there, there is, a, there is a, a certain sort of very definite reference class, right? All the cards in the deck, and only one of them is the three of clubs. So we can talk about a one out of 52 probability. The use of the term probability has expanded greatly beyond that. And I think almost every <laughs> place that it is expanded into is someplace where there is at least some infelicity with how it's used. Now, I was hoping I might be able to extract a bonus rant. Oh, right. I'm being taken by surprise here. <laughs> I know. Remember your second podcast appearance with me, or maybe it was the first one. Yeah, actually, it was the first one. We were talking about your experiencing the lockdown in China, like right at the early days of the yeah. COVID. And we both sort of had the opinion that it seemed to be working, but we weren't entirely comfortable with it. And I wondered how things seem to you now. Now this is after the zero COVID is broken down and you've just had it yourself and 
What do you think now? It's tough. So the initial lockdowns seemed uh, justified on the grounds that they, they kept people safe. And China was pursuing a strategy of eradication. Now, what I failed to fully appreciate at that point in time, well, I, I had some appreciation of it, but, but not for the implications of it, was that the rest of the world would not follow China's model. The rest of the world would not follow an aggressive eradication strategy. The rest of the world gave up on this basically immediately. Not everywhere, right? Like uh, New Zealand uh, and Australia did try to pursue a similar um, zero COVID policy, but pretty much everywhere else just gave up. So then it became a problem of the only way that you're going to maintain this is by just building a wall around your country, eradicating within the country and not allowing anyone in or out. And then the problem there is that can't continue indefinitely. So if the entire world had pursued a similarly aggressive eradication strategy, that might have been the best thing. That didn't happen. That was never going to happen. So given that China did and the rest of the world didn't, then it's simply a matter of planning for the eventual release of the zero COVID policies and putting your country in the best possible position to prevent mass death when the walls come down and you can't control it anymore. And I'm not sure at this point how to evaluate China's performance on that. But the criticism of China that I think rings most true now, although you know we'll, we'll have to see how things play out over the next couple months, is that they didn't do a good enough job preparing for that eventuality because the government was so enamored with its success in controlling the virus in the initial months that they never wanted to seriously entertain what an after zero COVID reality looked like. And so they didn't do as much as they could to set themselves up for success in that environment. Another observation I just want to make because it's been bouncing around in my head so much for the last couple of weeks is that it is insane how quickly the virus spread after China pivoted to getting rid of the zero COVID policy. They basically gave up zero COVID overnight. The testing that we've been required to do every every day, every other day, just went away everywhere at once. Uh, the little health codes you had to check to get it anywhere, people stopped testing those everywhere overnight. And then a week later, literally everyone I know had COVID. So it just, it went from zero to everywhere. Uh, I saw an estimate from a, an epidemiologist on NPR saying that COVID in China in the last two weeks has had a doubling time of hours. It's just completely been out of control. And this has been surprising to me. I think it's been surprising to a lot of people. Everyone knew that the Omicron variants were more contagious, but this I think is uh, the first real data we've gotten about how contagious they are, looking at unchecked spread in a more or less entirely naive population. And even not entirely naive, because there's still plenty of vaccination in China, right? It's with the Chinese vaccines, not with the Western mRNA vaccines, and maybe people haven't gotten as many shots as they should have. They haven't been adequately boosted in enough circumstances. But it's not an entirely naive population. And even then, even then, doubling time in hours. Everyone I know has got. 
It's ridiculous. I read this article recently in National Review that said, look at here, here are all the journalists in 2021 who were praising zero COVID or in 2020 praising zero COVID. Like China has this many deaths. The U.S. has this many. Doesn't this look good? And the upshot of the article is, don't these people look stupid now? But I thought, yeah, but I mean, it really did look a lot different in 2020. And you didn't have a crystal ball either, you know. So I'm totally for holding the media accountable for making mistakes. But I think one of the things that's frustrated me the most about this whole pandemic is how quickly people form really strong opinions about things that they know nothing about. Likewise. Likewise. All right. That ends two rants. One of them spontaneous. So I appreciate that very much. Yeah, no problem. So uh, shall I start ranting about something? Yes, you should start ranting about something. Mike, this is Mike Burke, and you're going to rant to us about what now? Okay, I'm going to rant and try to control my language, which is very difficult considering the fact that I'm English. If anybody's ever heard of Gordon Ramsay, you might might have some idea of how difficult that is. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the people who annoy me the most. And contrary to what you might expect, it's not woke people. I mean, woke people are awful. They support horrendous causes that seem to do damage to the very people they claim to be or they boast about being interceding on behalf of. But, you know, a lot of those people, it's all about their ego. It's all about making themselves looking good. It's all about boasting. And they're, they're awful, but they're, they're not the people who, who, who annoy me the most. The people who annoy me the most are the useful idiots for woke people. Do you know the type I mean? I think so. University presidents? No, not even them. So, like, okay, university president would be somebody who doesn't really understand what wokeism means, right? So university president might think, oh, I'm supporting Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter and it's simple as that. Or being woke is just about being aware of injustice in society and deciding to make a stand against it. And that's all that it means. And they don't notice the kind of the nefariousness that goes along with it, the malevolence, the toxic kind of behavior. They don't notice that. Or if they do, they don't pay any attention to it. But it's not even them. I mean, they're awful as well, right? Because they're kind of cowards. They won't take it on. Through their rhetoric, they kind of avoid taking on any problems. They're awful as well. But the worst people, I think, of all are, you know, not even the people who say, you know, the people who say the cancer culture isn't real. It's just people being held to account for things that they said. Not even them, right? I mean, they're delusional and stupid, but they're not the ones that really piss me off. The people who piss me off are the useful idiots. And here is a kind, and, and most of them have blocked me on Twitter because I, I really go for them whenever I see them quite hard. They're the people who are genuinely intelligent, genuinely well-read, and they know there's a problem, but they want to do whatever they can to obfuscate the problem. They want to do everything they can to kind of play it down so that they can gain status amongst the woke or those people who kind of move in woke circles, right? So, so what they're trying to do is the argument seems to be something like this. Such and such and such and such, a cancellation, for example, has happened to Professor X at University Y. This is really bad. It's a real problem. And it's happened on a few occasions. However, the people who are trying to draw attention to this problem are doing so in order to fuel the far right, which is a far, far, far worse problem than the woke have ever been. 
And then they go on to kind of attack people like, like me or like you. The other thing they do that, that really annoys me is poisoning the well. Right. So, so they'll go through, you know, so we've got some people in the, I guess you'd say the anti-woke crowd who've said some pretty crazy things over the years. James Lindsay would be an obvious example, you know, written some decent stuff, but also said some crazy stuff. And so what they do, these kind of woke apologists would do is that take something that James Lindsay had said, for example, and then focus on that and then say, this is exactly indicative of everything that he said, but not everything, that, not only everything that he said, Everything that anybody who is anti-woke, it's somehow representative of all of them too. So they try and poison the well in order to kind of try and make people who are standing up against wokeism look like we're a bunch of right-wing lunatics, which just isn't the case. And that's something that really, really, really annoys me. Those are the people that annoy me the most. Is that it? Yeah, do you want me to do any more rants? (laughs) You can add a little if you want. Any suggestions? What do you say to somebody who would say, well, look, we just have to do a certain amount of whataboutism here. We really do have to prioritize what concerns we're going to focus on, where we're going to direct our attention. And as a matter of fact, it just is the case that this campus nonsense and these Twitter harassment mobs or cancellation mobs or whatever, it's just a relatively small problem compared to whatever else we're dealing with. What do you say to that? I say that's transparently bullshit. It's transparently wrong. I, I mean, do I actually? You've just had the worst political riots in America ever. Uh, has, has there? I mean, you know, you're an American. Has there ever been anything worse than that? Uh, yeah, the Civil War. The Civil War. There we go. Okay, you have to go back from back quite a bit, though, right? There were riots in New York in resistance to the draft during the Civil War that was worse. There were riots in Tulsa, Oklahoma that were worse. There were riots in, I think, 68 that were worse. But still, it's been a while. Okay, certainly within our lifetimes, right? Certainly the worst. And even if they were the second worst, even if they were the third worst, even if they were the fifth worst, wouldn't that be enough? You know, you've got countless millions of dollars of damage that has been done to everyone, but disproportionately to black communities. You've got a situation where police are afraid to go into those communities full stop, which has resulted in violent crime, homicides, everything just going absolutely through the roof. The data on that is is crystal clear. I know that these people are going to say correlation and not causation. Well, what else are you going to put it down to? And why is it only happening in Democrat-controlled cities and not generally in Republican ones? Rhetoric of which a key component is the fact that Western society has been built to disadvantage black people, you know, in order to afford white people privileges and that police therefore are going around hunting black people. I mean, you had even the president of the United States coming out with that rhetoric. This rhetoric has consequences. Why would you not be focusing on that? Why would you be focusing instead upon, for example, January the 6th? Don't get me wrong. That was awful what happened then. But it's nowhere near as consequential or as bad as all of these riots that have been happening. What what else would you want to focus on? What other social movement can you name me within our lifetime that's been more consequential than Black Lives Matter and the woke rhetoric behind it? Has there been one? The trans movement. Is that more consequential? Yes. Do you think think so? It's transformed law throughout the entire developed world. Well, I mean, I mean that, that's kind of adjacent, isn't it? I'm not sure whether the data is in, whether it's been more consequential or not. 
I mean, there's certainly awful stuff going on there as well, and it, it, it's related. But, but I guess we're going to see. I mean, we need to wait a generation until the lawsuits really start coming in thick and fast about the kids who have been transitioned, manipulated. I mean, look, it strikes me, you know, as someone who's a little bit on the spectrum myself, it worries me, it concerns me. I don't know. This is anecdotal. I'm speculating, but I would be surprised. I'd be very surprised if what I'm about to say did not come to pass, that a significant portion of the kids that are being transitioned are being transitioned because they are seeking social acceptance because they're not very good at getting socially accepted because they're autistic. I would be very, very, very surprised if a, high, a very high proportion of these kids who turn out to deeply regret the actions they took when they weren't really intellectually prepared to make those kinds of decisions. I'd be very surprised if a high proportion wasn't autistic. But I mean, that's another thing we can look at. You know, but certainly that there is no case where you can say that we shouldn't be looking at the consequences of work rhetoric on campus. Uh, I, I know, for example, a colleague of mine had the same question put to her you know, Elizabeth right from the podcast. And she was doing a, a psychological study on Black Lives Matter and looking at different quotes and how they would resonate with people, basically. I mean, you know, this is simplifying. That's what it was. And then it was reported speech. She wasn't making any claims. And, you know, one of those was taken completely out of context and then used to stir up a Twitter mob. And then somebody senior at her university asked her, why would you study Black Lives Matter? Why would you even do that? Why would a social psychologist not study very arguably the most consequential, and even not the most consequential, then maybe the second, but certainly a very consequential social movement? So that's what I would say to them. I mean, it's just transparently bullshit. I mean, it's just, there's just so much that's, that, that's, that seems to be wrong right now in with regards to how you know, if you like the kind of the official set of intelligent people working at Harvard and at the New York times, they're saying that these arguments that, being, that, that, that we're being kind of forced to accept, it just, just seem to be so transparently absurd. I don't think you need to study philosophy to, to recognize that. And yet so many apparently otherwise intelligent people are not just accepting them, but, but actually useful idioting for them. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and give you my rant. And my rant is going to be on moral extremism and the dangers of that. So I think you know I've written a paper on this, on moral extremism. And I just want to lay out the claim here. So we often talk as if people who are super zealous towards some cause might be dangerous, even if the cause is a good one. And a lot of people think that there's a kind of a paradox here, or superficially, it might seem like there is one, which is, if what you're devoted to really is good, how can you go too far? How can you, how can you be too, too zealous in favor of what's good? And this leads to the kind of skepticism that, well, if somebody goes out and does something terrible in the name of a cause, it must be because what's really motivating them is like hatred and that the good cause or the good intentions that purportedly motivated them is just sort of a post hoc rationalization at best, maybe a, a lie or a way of papering it over. But I want to say, no, it's extremely important to understand how devotion to moral causes, genuinely moral causes can lead to genuine evils. And I even want to say 
that I think the worst evils in the world are like this. So the thing about it is, is people are often motivated to do good, but no one is motivated by the good period. It's always in some sort of context. It's always a particular good that is aimed at, right? Given a particular judgment, weighing it against other sorts of goods. And once you realize that this is possible, you can see how a single-minded kind of devotion or focus on promoting a particular good might come with blinkers. It might come with a way of, of screening out competing considerations so you can focus on the thing that you think is important. And if that goes too far, it can lead to really bad things. Here's an example I think a lot of people will concede as a plausible example. So the temperance movement in the United States. People in the United States used to drink so much alcohol in the 19th century, like unbelievable amounts of alcohol. Visitors from other countries were shocked. So it was sensible that there was this temperance movement where people would swear to not drink very much or not drink at all and would be committed publicly to sobriety. In the later part of the 19th century, this became more and more moralistic and kind of in your face. Already in the 1850s, there was an experiment with prohibition in, I think it was New York or Maine, but it failed. But you would have people who were not just committing to their own temperance, but insisting that others be completely abstinent with regard to alcohol as well. And there are reasons to think this, right? For example, there weren't very many protections for women and children in the United States or in very many parts of the world at that time. So if you have a drunk husband, it's really a bad problem. Also, you had the saloon situation. So saloons were sort of low-grade bars, but they were also associated with gambling and prostitution. And this is a time where you get a venereal disease, you've got it forever. So there were very good reasons for women in particular to oppose these institutions. But it went to such an extent that first it started with prayings, people just coming in and praying and blocking the doors of saloons, people campaigning to make individual counties dry counties so that you couldn't sell alcohol in the counties. Then you had people like Carrie Nation in particular became famous vandalizing and destroying these places of business. And, you know, she was a woman whose husband had died of alcoholism and she had been in the temperance movement. So she had been associated with a lot of other women who had had horrible experiences with alcoholism. So what's, what's a little bit of property damage compared to the evil, the systemic evil of alcohol? Easy to think this. Then when they passed the, I, gosh, I forget whether it's the 18th or 19th Amendment, there was that and women, the right of women to vote were passed at the same time because this was a women's issue and this was, there was a coalition here. When that happened, there was even an attempt to poison, and not, not an attempt, this happened. They poisoned industrial alcohol um, so that people wouldn't use it for drinking under prohibition, knowing what was going to happen. People drank it. People died. 10,000 people died in the 20s of the government poisoning alcohol. Wayne Wheeler, who was the sort of de facto leader of the Anti-Saloon League, which was you know the main movement that was opposing this, he said, well, th that's a suicide. If somebody dies opposing the Constitution of the United States, that's on them. It has nothing to do with us. So here it's a pretty clear example where someone perceived a really significant evil 
that caused a lot of suffering for a lot of people and opposed it, seen for the evil that it is, but did it in such a single-minded, devoted way that they were unwilling to consider the collateral damage that was involved with that. So that's a clear example of this happening, but I want you to think about how this is a model for human behavior generally that extends to all sorts of other things, right? It is simply a mistake to think that good things come from good emotions and good intentions and bad things come from bad emotions and bad intentions. But we talk this way, or like a lot of people on the left talk about this. They like love versus hate, love all the good policies, hate all the bad policies. The world is more complicated than that. And love and hate are interrelated. They're not opposites. You love the things that destroy what you hate and you hate the things that threaten what you love. And it's not as if anyone is likely to be motivated by just one of these emotions. And it's certainly not the case that large masses of people are likely to be motivated by just one of these emotions, even with regard to a particular thing. And I think if you look at some of the worst evils in history, you find an element of this. You find an element of a moralistic motive that is underpinning it. Now, that's most easy to see with the communists, utopians. I think it's true of the Nazis, too. Fascists? Yes. I mean, they all thought they were on the side of the angels, right? That was the whole thing. It was their their complete lack of doubt, their complete self-righteousness. We may have to murder these people. That's a negative. We don't want to do it. But, you know, that can't be helped. The, The ends always justify the means. They are absolutely sure that they can build the kingdom of heaven on earth. Well, for some people, it ended up not even being a negative. But that's not how they got there. How do you get a mindset of people who are willing to enact such horrible policies? These are psychopathic policies. These are psychopathic things. But very few people are psychopaths. So if you get the masses doing it, you've got to engage their moral emotions somehow. And if you look at the Nazis, I defend this a bit in my paper. I'll make a point now that I didn't make in my paper that seems to me so obvious that I should have said it. One thing about the Nazis that is undeniable is that they were very obsessed with revenge. They were very obsessed with revenge. Now, I think revenge is not an inherently moral concept. So I can just say, you have harmed me. Now I want to harm you. And there's no moral concept implied in that. But in actual matter of fact, when people feel that they want to have revenge on people, they also tend to think this is what is coming to you. You deserve it. It's maybe good that you get it. And it's good for me to have this revenge, right? Revenge is not justice, but it's kind of justice adjacent in people's minds. They had some legitimate re- grievances yep. after World War One. You know, not all of the motives that they would have to think that it would be great if we were a powerful nation again. It would be great if we could avenge some of the harms that that were done to us. Even if that's not right, it is morally understandable. And it's also understandable how if you have many people focus single-mindedly on this, they begin to think, well, you know what? It's so important that we get our revenge and it's so important that we reassert our own dominance and undo the harm that was done to us in the Great War that we have a bit of a moral permission slip, don't we? We get to cut a few moral corners. That doesn't get you to the concentration camps, but it gets you on the road. It gets you in the kind of mind frame that a truly evil person can exploit and, and get you to much worse kinds of evil. There were other things that they were exploiting then as well, like, for example, sex. You know, the Weimar Republic legalized prostitution at that time, and that create, 
created like real havoc amongst Christians there of thinking that something was really, the society was going towards hedonism and falling apart. And so even though they were afraid of the Nazis, they started turning to the Nazis because they thought that the Nazis had moral solutions to these problems. Didn't know that, but I take your word for it. And so we need a bit of order to compensate for a kind of dissolute freedom. You can see how that could be exploited to evil ends. So why do I bring this up? I think it's extremely important for people to realize just because you really feel that you're motivated to oppose something that is genuinely bad, that doesn't mean that there's nothing dangerous about that. Think about when you're angry about something, when you're really angry about something and you have a right to be, you have a reason to be. That doesn't mean that that anger isn't going to distort your thinking at all. If you're extremely angry because, I don't know, something bad has happened to you, you've been robbed or whatever, it might be good for me to say to you, Mike, well, maybe you shouldn't drive right now. Maybe you shouldn't make any really important decisions right now. But the truth of it is, is that anger, no matter how justified you might think it is, is not conducive to clear thinking and is not conducive to moral action almost all of the time. Look at post 9-11, the United States. We had been wronged. Something horrible had been done to us. But did we think more clearly because of this? No, we did a lot of stupid decisions and we did it with the sense of self-righteousness because look at these terrorists. It's our turn to flex our muscles. And if we do some bad, we can be forgiven for that. So I think there's a similar thing with the whole George Floyd thing, the whole Black Lives Matter thing. You know, we have a movement that's motivated by violent imagery. Violent imagery causes the emotional impetus. That is not the kind of thing that causes clear thinking. There was something in Egypt when I was there, that a movement called We Are All Muhammad Khaled. Now, who is that? He was a guy who was murdered by henchmen or thugs in the Mubarak regime. He was at an internet cafe, mistaken for another person who was wanted, drug out into the street and had his face smashed into concrete until he died. And the pictures of his face became the impetus for the ouster of the Mubarak regime. That image was so powerful, and it enraged people. I haven't been following Egyptian politics very closely lately, but my understanding is this has not worked out all that well. The The CC regime is not more benevolent than the Mubarak regime. This, we feel outraged, we need to express our outrage, and because it's against something evil, there must be no harm in that. It's a very foolish thing to think. It's a very dangerous thing to think. And I'll just end with that. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So the the obvious solution to that would be, okay, let's follow a kind of a Burkean conservative perspective in which we look at the institutions that we have we evaluate them calmly. We say, okay, they might have some problems. We can change some of those problems. We can mold them in minor ways, but we should cherish the institutions that we have because they've delivered these brilliant societies, albeit ones that have problems. How is it that, and I'm going to quote Dostoevsky in Notes from Underground, kind of channel Dostoevsky in Notes from Underground. How is it the man is so ungrateful for all of these things, you know, all of these institutions that have been delivered to you that work, how is it that we can only see the negative? How is it that we can't, by and large, see how amazing they are, feel a sense of joy and pride at, at the achievement that the lights come on and that we have clean drinking water and, and that nobody's starving? 
how is it that we just skip all over that, even though those are extremely special things throughout the course of history? And instead, we jump to these kind of very self-righteous movements that want to tear everything down, that are formed in anger and resentment and ingratitude. Do you have any thoughts on that? I want to say that it's easy to take for granted what has never been challenged in your life. But it could also be the case that getting rapid progress causes a drastic increase in expectations and you want to even more really rapidly. I mean, that happens with revolutions. So I don't know. I think the moral extremism can take over in either of those contexts. But I do think it's important to realize that our moral passions and our genuine desire for justice and things like that, justice and and well-being are things that can lead us astray if we're not thinking carefully about it. I'll mention finally, Paul Bloom has got a book called Against Empathy. It's not really against empathy, but it's a criticism of taking empathy to be authoritative or taking empathy to be the final word on on what is good because empathy tends to act as a spotlight. You focus on certain things, but you don't see the broader picture. You see this particular death that was caught in this photograph or in this video, but you don't see the consequences for an entire set of policy that you're about to change, for example. I think one thing that might hold in check or that could in, in previous generations have held in check the kind of reckless moral extremism that you're kind of talking about where people are getting really angry and, and, and smashing things up is the Christian notion of pride, that we recognize our limitations, that we recognize that we can be tempted by Satan, the devil, or not, you know, the devil is a metaphorical figure or as a literal one, you know, it doesn't really matter. But that we can't build the kingdom of heaven on earth. We're always going to be led astray by pride. There doesn't seem to be much awareness of the kind of destructive nature of pride that's described in the Bible. Pride seems to be, especially in American civilization, and the way you see people on various talent shows or, or cooking programs, Hell's Kitchen, and this is one of mine that I watched. And you see them on the bus and the way they're like, I'm the best ever. I'm amazing. I'm, and it's just these people. I mean, pride and vanity just radiates from, from them. They believe that they can achieve everything they want. I mean, that's one of the big lies, I think, isn't it? From things like Disney, believe in your dream, you can achieve anything. No, you can't. And if you try, the consequences might be far worse than you can really imagine. Anyway, just an observation. Yeah, I think it's interesting the sorts of vices that are emphasized. The vice of not being empathetic enough is really quite emphasized. Pride and anger as vices, especially moralized anger, the concept seems to have slipped away from us. It's gone. Yeah. And a better sort of sense that those things can lead us astray would be some sort of protection against this. Now, Oliver Trolley is going to join me. For the final rant of the twenty-two or the, the twenty twenty-two rantathon, which may or may not become a tradition at micro digressions. So, Ollie, what do you want to rant about? Well, I want to rant about something that you and I have talked about a lot about uh the redefinition of words, about uh, a program in analytic philosophy that's sometimes called conceptual engineering or ameliorative analysis. Um, so I just want to rant about this sort of argument that I'm working on against this program. So 
you know, ameliorative analysis, basically you take a word and you say, wouldn't the world kind of be a better place if the, if this word meant something different might be a word like race or gender or racism or sexism in Kate Mann's book, down girl, she takes on the word misogyny and says it has a certain flavor a certain feel, and that means that it has a, a role to play if we just redefine it to mean what, what she wants it to mean. Now, there's a standard criticism of ameliorative analysis, which says you're just changing the subject. When you redefine a word, it kind of means something different. So you're just talking about something else. You're not talking about the same thing. It kind of is the, it has the order of operations wrong. The world should come first in our philosophy and in science and things like that, right? That's what's real. Our language is just a way to describe the world. So you kind of, you know, you reify the language or something like that when you treat this redefinition as having such such big effects. Um, and so the conceptual engineering people, the redefiners, they're, they're at pains to say, well, we're, we're not really... You know, we're not really changing the subject. We're still talking about the same thing. We're just kind of improving it somehow. We're improving our deficient concepts. So I have an argument that uh, even if this is the case, they're in trouble. So imagine they're they're not changing the subject, right? Then they don't want people to have new beliefs. Oh, sorry about that. I was going to say, let's get a concrete example before us. Yeah, okay. So, you know... Well, this isn't one from philosophers. This is one from the broader culture. But, you know, you might have grown up like me thinking that the word racist meant somebody with some terrible beliefs about others and their heads or who, who engaged in some terrible behaviors towards others, right? Based on their race, discriminate, discriminatory behaviors, bigoted beliefs, right? And in, in modern parlance, it's not clear that it means that anymore. Maybe it's been kind of shifted around to me and somebody who participates in certain social structures or something like that, or who isn't sufficiently anti-racist, right? Who doesn't vote the right way, who thinks they have other reasons, but maybe is wrong. And you don't have to be kind of what they call a psychological racist anymore to be considered racist. So the, the people who like to redefine the words, they're at pains to say, hey, we're still talking about racism, we just think it means this instead of that thing, or we're trying to make it mean this thing instead of that thing. And so I basically think, even if you're still talking about the same thing, you're in trouble because, hey, if you're talking about the same thing, then you want people to have new beliefs about that thing, right? Now, what is the basis on which you want people to have new beliefs? The basis is just that, hey, we were able to, to shift the meaning of the word through our political power, right? The basis is not any new evidence, not any new reasons for belief, right? Not the sorts of things that we care about in epistemology, not the sorts of things that would be rational to change your belief or would justify a change in your belief. There are all these political, pragmatic factors um, and have to do with who has the power to change words and what sort of political program you're signed up for. So this is my rant. Redefining word, there's no future in it. There's no philosophical basis for it, at least redefining in these political programs. Um, doesn't matter if you're changing the subject or not, you're still doing something vicious, whether it's vicious as a matter of philosophy of language or vicious as a matter of epistemology, you can't make it work. So there's my rant. 
I've always thought what's fundamentally wrong about this is that it mistreats certain members of the community of speakers of whatever language this is happening in. So it's not as if words have got these essences that need to be respected. Like a woman just means a certain thing, uh, what have you. The, the word woman means a certain thing, what have you. Racism means a certain thing, what have you. And we just have to respect these essences or these concepts or whatever. It's rather that how we carve up the world is a communal activity. And when you change our tools by sort of for describing the world, for carving it up in this way, like out from under people, you're showing them some kind of disrespect. You're, you're failing to respect the way that they perceive reality. And, and you're, you're failing to respect that the, that these tools are a kind of common resource that isn't just available for you and your activist friends to use as you wish. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There's definitely a lot of ethical problems with this. And there's also political problems with it, right? There are these issues of backlash. There are these issues of kind of grandstanding by continued redefinition. There are these practical problems of, of the euphemism treadmills. You might have seen that uh, Stanford recently put out some language guide where they said um, you can't use the phrase trigger warning anymore because it, it has there's some problem with it. Whereas, you know, when you and I first met and started talking about this stuff, it must have been five or six years ago. The kind of progressive thing was to be very in favor of trigger warnings and call them trigger warnings, you know, and now suddenly there's going to be a change to that, how that has to be talked about. Um, and so I think there's all these political, practical and ethical problems with redefinition. Um, and uh, I am excited to see, I think, as the topic becomes more and more kind of part of what we discuss in philosophy and as more and more kind of uh, what we might call heterodox views come out about it, the ethical and political problems will also be broached. Um, this issue of respecting people, respecting the way they view the world, respecting the way they use language, respecting the way their language has carved up the world, um, I think is, is so important. Um, and it's kind of part of my general view my general kind of, I guess you could call it democratic or liberal or whatever tenor of my thinking where I just think, look, the, the language is kind of made by everyone and I might want to introduce new things to it, but I should also kind of take seriously all of the distinctions that have made their way into natural language and all the concepts that have made their way into natural language. Um, they're, they're probably there for a reason, you know, Chesterton's fence or whatever, right? The language probably is the way it is for a reason. Um, and you shouldn't just think the reason is to, I don't know, dominate others and, you know, serve power the way a radical might think it is. The reason is probably to serve various practical problems and to, you know, as a, you know, metaphysical neoconservative, I was once called, I also think part of the reason is to respect the joints in nature, you know, and get at the, the true essence of the thing. Um, but yeah, I'm completely on board with you, although maybe more of an essentialist than you are at the end of the day.